You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 173. What's up, Mark? What's up? We launched another show. I'm starting to lose track of these darn things, Jake. So uh, last week at the Smart Contracts Conference, big shout out to Data Gumbo out there. We launched the All & Gas Tech Podcast, and yours truly is the host of that show. We had, we had a very good turnout. One of the things that we're doing a little bit differently is we're actually, besides talking about really cool tech in oil and gas, we're actually also doing product reviews. So if you're a company out there that you have something that's portable, that's geeky, that's a bit of a gadget, and you'd like it review on the show, reach out to me and let me know. But but we're going places. Maybe like that, that six year old kid who's making like twenty two million dollars a year doing tour <laughs> reviews. Well, so we did a product review, and thank you, sure, for giving us a microphone on a on a microphone made for iPhones, Jake, and it's actually really cool. And so I actually gave it to Justin, who used it, I believe, with Josh. Who's the coffee guy? Josh Robbins. Coffee's Robbins closers. closers. Yeah. So I believe that sure by giving us a product to review on the tech podcast actually helped Josh and. and and Justin record a cool episode in whatever show, uh, coffee shop they're in. So it was just pretty cool. So yeah, if you got a product, let us know and we'd be happy to review it. And yes, Jake, we are all over the place and we're growing and it's really cool stuff. And speaking of all over the place, we got a really interesting review this week. You want to read it? Yes, it's from, I don't know if it's a title of it. No, yeah, it's the it's from Sinner MVP. And the title says Oilfield Wife Rave. And she writes, living in the Permian Basin can lead to a lot of stereotypes from an outsider perspective. Being from the Northeast, there's a huge gap between the news and having enough transparency and good information out there for a general understanding of how this industry actually works. Oil and Gas This Week is the best podcast that brings us real-time info in an engaging and comprehensive way. And if you're in the Permian Basin, make sure you check out Permian Perspective and the Monthly Happy Hour in Midland, Odessa. That is so cool that we actually, from Oilfield Wife, got this really good review. If you'd like to be like Oilfield Wife and get us a big shout out on the show, a simple, easy thing to do, give us a review on iTunes. It's the number one way you can support the show in our, what are we up to? In our eight other shows as of today. I lost count. So I'm telling you. So it's time to get the news story. What's going on, Jake? U.S. natural gas exports to Europe soared nearly 300% in nine months now, Mark. That sounds ridiculous. It's awesome. And the reason it sounds ridiculous is we all we, we literally exported zero natural gas until we start setting up these LNG plants. Now, the cool thing about this is what we are doing as a country is we're loosening the chokehold Russia has had on Europe for their energy requirements. Now, Russia still supplies a huge percentage of that energy mix, but it's looking like by toward the end of this year, we should be able to, to supply about 30% of Europe's energy needs. How cool is that? That is pretty cool. And it's, and it's a way for us to actually make the world a smaller place. When you have countries like the U.S. who can ramp up oil and gas production and can export it uh, cost effectively and bring it to other countries that need that energy, we're then sharing that prosperity that we have here in the States, that hydrocarbon prosperity with the rest of the world. And when you're able to reduce the number of people that have uh, constraints in the market, that have monopolies, and you could look at Russia as having a monopoly on the European uh, energy market, you're now actually in the long-term way driving competition, which only drives prices down, which then means it's better for the people in Europe because energy prices will go down. So I just thought it was really cool that we went from, and that's the reason that number so big, you know, if, if you export zero natural gas in place and you export like one f- cubic foot of it, that's like 300% mark <laughs> at times. That's where that number came from. But I just think it's cool we're heading that direction. And we're also exporting natural gas to other parts of the world. And we're at the very beginning of that, and that trend will continue. Do you know who produces more natural gas, us or Russia? We just passed up Russia literally, I think, last month. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, the problem with that is the 
the number from the U.S. I can believe in. The number I hear from Russia, I can't believe in. So what's the reality? Honestly, I don't know. But according to what was reported last month, we finally passed up Russian gas production. Interesting. Okay. All right. Next article, Chevron is closing the deal on Petrobras's Pasadena refinery and assets. So they're purchasing that. They close it out for the small price of $350 million, which was completed on May 1st. It's a pretty small refinery. It's 110,000 barrels a day throughput, which from what I know, seems pretty small. It is a small refinery compared to some of the <laughs> monsters we have at the Gulf Coast right now. I know you wanted to clean this article. Do you think there's any significance of you know the acquisition? Or are we just showing that Petrobras wanted to divest assets? Well, so Petrobras needs the money. And, and quite frankly, them trying to run a refinery business in the United States while they're still trying to maintain their upstream business in Brazil, it's just too much for them. Yeah. The nice thing about this is this, this is Chevron buying capacity in a part of the market that they really are good at. So Chevron has a strong downstream component here in the US. And when I say downstream, most people think of fuel like diesel and uh, jet fuel and gasoline, but it's way more than that. It's all those petrochemicals. It's all those parts and pieces that make everything possible in modern life comes out of refinery. So with Chevron acquiring this uh, Pasadena refinery, they're adding a second refinery to its Gulf Coast downstream business. The other one is in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which I've been there a gazillion times. Mike Whitney, if you're still the refinery manager out there, hi, I haven't talked to you in like 10 years, so I doubt he's still there. But this is Chevron just boosting their Gulf Coast refinery business. It just makes perfect sense. All right. This next one I think is rather interesting. So if you've paid any attention to the news in this space lately, over the past week, Weatherford is filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So let's take a little walk down memory lane and kind of figure out how did Weatherford go from being the fourth largest oilfield service company to Chapter 11? While Chapter 11 is not the nail in the coffin, it is a great tool for obviously refinancing debt and kind of resurging from there. We've seen huge bankruptcies, not just in the oil and gas industry, but just kind of just nationwide. Obviously, some of the most notable ones were like GM, for example. GM is still going strong. So this is not the end of Weatherford, but let's kind of take a little bit of a dive back into how Weatherford really became that fourth largest oil field service company. So in the late 80s, Weatherford International wanted to break into, obviously, like the big three club. So, you know, Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes. So they went on a buying spree, gobbled up dozens of smaller companies, some with cash, some with stock, and then lots and lots of borrowing, and then successfully became the fourth biggest oil field service companies in the world. So diving a little bit more into their acquisitions, they bought 47 smaller oil field service providers in a series of deals between 1998 and 2011. That's crazy. Yeah. So the terms of those deals, only 29 of those were actually made public. And those were collectively valued at more than $6.1 billion. The article kind of dives into what they believe was kind of the downfall of Weatherford which would be struggling to integrate all the disparate components that it added. I mean, think about, think about that many companies. Just merging a few, a few companies is a huge challenge, but merging 47 companies? Yeah, and, and they didn't do it. They, that's actually one of their problems is they, they acquired all these different companies, and each of these companies still operated independently inside the mothership Weatherford, which is a horrible way to, when you talk about driving efficiencies. You have the opposite approach. You have inefficiencies creep in, everything from supply chain to communication to even sales. You know, you could have the through tubing services of Weatherford guys have a great relationship with Anadarko out in the Permian, and then the 
the drilling chemical side of Weatherford doesn't even know anybody over there. But since those two sales teams don't talk to each other, they don't know that. And it's just a horrible way to drive efficiencies in a company. When you make acquisitions, they have to be integrated. And I do realize it takes time, but they Weatherford literally did none of this. Yeah. So today, Weatherford is obviously, you know, they've, they've filed for bankruptcy. They're trading as a penny stock after getting delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. Their total market cap is uh, just below $367 million, a mere one twentieth of its $7.6 billion debt. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else, Jake, and I'm not going to mention names, but I know a group of individuals whose game plan was to build small oil and gas service companies and then get on Weatherford's way there, so Weatherford would buy them. And all those companies had a bunch of debt. They were financed when they built and ran up through debt. And these these people that did this did this several times. So their goal was not to build an oil and gas service company. Their goal was to build an oil and gas service company that the mathematics made them pop up on Weatherford's um, acquisition team, and then Weatherford would buy it. Now, hats off to these people that did it. That's a different and actually brilliant <laughs> business idea, but it wasn't the best thing for Weatherford. And I'm not saying this had anything to do with with the downfall of Weatherford, but you know, when you when your mergers and acquisitions team can be figured out by other people, something needs to be tweaked there. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of look at other companies in this space that have recently tried to do roll-ups. One that comes to mind, not throwing shade, it's just the nature of their business, but drilling info. You think about it, they made 10 acquisitions in the last year. From what I hear, they've had a little struggle just with other companies of actually integrating these together. You know, should this be a warning sign for companies trying to do the same, or did Weatherford just royally screw this up? No, it should be a warning sign. And the thing is, we're, we're I mean, you know, you and I talk about this all the time on the microphone. The 2019 oil and gas industry is vastly different than the 1980 oil and gas industry. And that difference is going to continue to grow. And that includes things like mergers and acquisitions. It includes things by like financing your operations through debt. And, and you need to do some of that. But that being able to maintain your own capital, the control of your own capital is so important in today's market. And, it, and just, you know, Financing growth to do debt is not a long-term strategy anymore. I'm sorry. Um, and it, it really, if you think about it from a business point of view, should never be anybody's strategy. Debt has its place. Debt is a way for you to get companies stood up and get to scale quickly so you can grab market share, but should not be a way that you try to run your business long-term-wise. And Weatherford hasn't made a profit since when, Jake? I can't remember. It's been like, what, 20, 2011? Yeah. So, you know, at some point, the shareholders need to be talking to the board of directors over there going, look, we haven't had a quarterly profit since 2011, I think things need to change. And that happened at Weatherford, but it happened way, way, way too late because everybody just assumed they'd pull out of this. Yeah. So to kind of run through the numbers, they haven't turned a, an annual profit since 2011, while its revenues have fallen by two-thirds over the past five years and its employment by more than half to 26,500 from a peak of 70,000 employees in 2013. Obviously, they've spent the past year selling off a ton of assets and trying to focus on where they're most competitive. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a failure all around. I think it's a failure on the the executives. It's a failure of the shareholders. And I think, once again, everybody forgets that debt doesn't just – you don't just get debt. Banks are issuing debt. And I think the banks are also equally as fault. Yeah, and and you know what? A lot of the stuff that was financed with Weatherford through their growth phase, if they would try that exact same approach now, banks wouldn't finance them. And neither would Wall Street. Wall Street plays a part in this too because for a while, Wall Street thought that the oil and gas industry, especially the service companies and upstreams, was the golden goose, right? That that nothing could go wrong. Just throw money at and you'll get a return on your investment. And that was great when oil was $120, $130 a barrel. But I'm telling you, investors and Wall Street, this will happen again. 
in another seven, eight, 10, 12 years, we'll have another major downturn and it will happen again. It's a, the cycle of the market. So just pay attention to what you're throwing money at. Yep. So speaking of Wolfold Services, Slumberger is selling three businesses to a Houston company for $400 million. So they're selling their fishing and tubular businesses and assets to Houston-based Wellbore Integrity Solutions, an affiliate of private equity firm Roan Capital. So the $400 million deal is expected to close by the end of 2019. So I see this as a classic example of Slumberger honing in on on what they want to be good at and just divesting assets that are not making money. Yeah, and, and they are – they are. I said they are. They were making money. Their fishing business is actually pretty good. If you know what fishing is, it's not trying to catch things that swim around with fins. It's when you drop something down a well. Usually it's when you either drop something down a well or something gets stuck. And for some reason, you have to get down there and retrieve it or fix it. And it's it's basically – it's a ways to get down the well and do work without having to open that well up, without having to stick more drill stem in it. Think a coil tube and sort of stuff. So what's interesting about this is I think you're exactly right. I think this is Slumberjay doing the opposite of Weatherford and saying, you know what? If we want to grow, we want to grow in areas that are core competencies so we can have high margins so we can be financially strong. And I think they're spinning off parts of their business that's just not core to what they do anymore, yep. which I think is a great move. Yeah, it's a smart move. I mean, the first time I heard fishing – when it came into the industry and I literally had no clue what it was talking about. I was like, what kind of, what kind of prehistoric type fish could you catch in a well bore? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, this is the wrong show cause it's not explicit, but I, the, our oil and gas industry is full of strange acronyms and so many of them are sexual. It's, it's, it's hilarious. It's almost like a bunch of college frat guys invented these acronyms in the fifties and they stuck ever since then. Well, they all went to A&M. So what do you expect? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, KKR and Spur Energy Partners joined forces to acquire production assets across the U.S. So Spur Energy Partners is actually headed up by Jay Graham, who was the former CEO of Wild Horse Resource Development, which if you remember not too long ago, I don't think it was, was either last year or the year before, sold out to somebody, I can't remember exactly who, one of the big guys for multiple billions of dollars. So now he's partnered up with KKR, which is a leading global investment firm just to acquire large, high-margin oil and gas production and development assets across the lower 48. So he's teamed up with a bunch of his old old guys. They made their first acquisition from Percussion Petroleum, I believe, Yep, for 380 gross-producing wells and 22,000 net acres in the core of the ESO formation in Eddy and Leah Counties, New Mexico, and the associated water and midstream assets. And so... During the first quarter of 2019, the assets produce approximately 9,200 net barrels of oil equivalent per day, 85% liquids. That's not bad. I don't know how much they bought nope. it for, but that sounds that's, I mean, that's a lot of production. I actually know Jay Graham. Him and his team have done this so many times that I would just write them a check. I, don't, I wouldn't even know what the details. I'm so confident they're going to do it again. They've been doing this forever. They, they basically buy acreage. They build a operating company around. They finance it themselves with their own energy fund. They get to a certain production number, then they sell it, and then they go on to the next, and they do it again and again. So, you know, hats off to them for for understanding our industry, doing good business, and I expect them to be super successful with this. Yeah, I, I, everything that I've seen Jay touch is kind of turned to gold. So, I'll be I'll be watching this very closely. Up next, Exxon's premium production to yield sixty four billion dollars for the state of New Mexico. It's a lot of money. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. But let's look at the time frame. It's still a lot of money, but it's going to be in $64 billion worth of value in net economic benefits for the state and local communities for the next 40 years. And see, I think that's actually a positive thing. Yeah. No, it, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. Yeah. I think the, the title was a little bit clickbaity and misleading saying that this, all of course. this year it's going to be $64 billion in value. But Exxon alone, their permanent activity is expected to create 4,100 direct job opportunities per year. 
for New Mexico and for the next 40 years and generate $29 billion in new wages, salaries, and benefits. And what this study, you know, the way that it factored it was actually based on $40 commodity prices. So over over the next 40 years, I'm sure that's probably a good average. It's a very conservative number, I think, which just shows the strength. Now, I don't know this for sure because Exxon still doesn't call me when they're doing their strategic planning meetings. Well, Exxon, if, if you would let me know ahead of time and, I, and if I could fit it in my calendar, I'd be happy to join. But there's a rumor going around that last 2016, Exxon changed its break-even point for the U.S. to, to $35 a barrel. So if you could do a project in the U.S., and once again, this is rumor, anywhere in Exxon's the place where they play in the U.S., and your break-even point is over $35 a barrel, they won't move ahead with the project. So that tells you Exxon's looking at long-term lower prices for crude, and they're building a business strategy around that. Them doing more work in the Permian in the New Mexico area, I think is awesome. And it's funny, Jake, we're, we're going up there to speak pretty soon, not to Exxon, but to the <laughs> group up there. All the New Mexicans. All the New Mexicans. <laughs> Somebody's going to give us hate mail for that watch. Uh, another cool little fact from the article is in March, Exxon revealed its plans to increase premium production to more than 1 million barrels of oil equipment per day by 2024. That's a lot of production. It's just awesome. I, you know, I knew this Permian thing was huge. I didn't know how big it was. And even by my most active imagination five years ago, I wouldn't have thought we were at, at the point we are now. And, and Jake, it's literally an oil field the size of the state of Alabama. Yep. I did the math the other day and then I got Google to see which states had that many square miles. And it's just about the size of Alabama. So imagine an entire field. Now, not only the size of Alabama, but you have to remember because it's unconventional, because it's shell, it's three dimensional. So it's layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of hydrocarbons the size of the state of Alabama. It's just enormous. And, you know, we, we've been out there several times. We have our Midland happy hour. That area of the U.S. is just blowing and going. It's own little microeconomic model, and it's just a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, it's, it's great out there. The only complaint is I wish T-Mobile would have ever serviced, but hey. <laughs> well, seeing, seeing the money and the prosperity is great. Not being able to get a hotel room or having to pay, you know, $700 for a hotel room that 10 years ago you would have paid 100 bucks for. That's different, but that's just a sign of, of how much activity is going on out there. Yep, exactly. All right, so we're going to round out the episode. We've got two more articles. Both are pretty tech heavy, but this is some great news that I found. Hypergiant uses satellites and AI to mine oil and gas data. So Hypergiant, I, I, I've i kind of seen them around, especially at Station Houston. I think they're technically founded or at least now headquartered in Austin, but I, I feel like they might have started in here in Houston, but don't quote me on that. But they've been, been doing some really cool stuff with satellites and by creating kind of quote unquote vertically integrated geospatial intelligence and infrastructure capability. So basically the company is sending small satellites into space, gathering data from earth, applying machine learning and turning the resulting intelligence and data into a obviously lucrative business. They've been doing pretty well. They launched like a year ago and I think on LinkedIn, they have about a hundred employees, which is remarkable. So they already have a number of clients, but now they're applying all of their efforts to oil and gas fields. So they conducted a pilot with an unnamed Fortune 500 oil and gas company to test the ideas out, leveraging that company's internal data sets and adding purchase satellite data. They applied their AI models and apparently it was pretty successful, according to the the article here. You know what's so cool about this story? It was not that long ago that it would be literally financially impossible for a private company to put satellites in orbit. Only governments could afford to do that. So what, what you did is if you were a private company, you rented space off those satellites and it's expensive. And you get to the point, and you know, big shout out to Elon Musk, even though he doesn't like hydrocarbons, but he should. But Elon Musk is one of those drivers that's 
lowering the prices dramatically of getting payloads into space. And this is something that I think is important to the, or super important to the future of mankind is our ability to be commercially viable in space. And here's a company that's starting to do it. The other thing I'm really interested in, because I did a kind of a deep dive in this article and the company, what they're attempting to do, and they won't say this specifically, but I know this is where they're going. They're trying to use this type of technology to accurately forecast where there might be reservoirs, which then means you're now bringing a totally different way other than geoscience to see if there's reservoirs there. If I'm right about that, it looks like I might be, like I said, they don't say it specifically. That's then another competing technology to all the geoscience and geophysics, which just means it's going to make it easier and better for everybody to find reservoirs of hydrocarbons. I, I just think this is awesome. I wish them much success. I'd actually like to maybe get them on the tech show. So if you're listening to this show and you work or know somebody that works at Hypergiant, have them reach out to me. I'd love to get y'all on the Oil and Gas Tech Podcast and talk about what y'all are doing. Yeah, I'm confused about how it actually works, especially in the oil and gas space, because if you think back Back to early 2000s, this is me not, I'm not throwing any shade whatsoever. I'm just kind of giving a story here. There was that startup, Terra, Terra something. Oh, I do remember them. They, uh, they, yeah, they, I can't remember the name either. I can't remember the name, but it was it was a fascinating story. And they're still in litigation and the, the founder is now in prison and stuff. But long story short, he was a JPL, so the Jet Propulsion Labs slash NASA guy kind of had some fame out in Silicon Valley, raised like $400 million at like a multi-billion dollar valuation and then bought some Russian jets, like fighter jets, and then convinced even some oil and gas CEOs, some very famous ones, to also invest and then piloted their companies. And so he had like all the backing behind him. He had the industry behind him. He had Silicon Valley behind him. Some Probably to the extent that I, we've probably never seen since then. And come to find out, it was essentially he was trying to fly the planes over and do seismic from the air. That's that was like what the whole pitch was, and it was like supposed to be super revolutionary, and obviously it was kind of just a an early Theranos. It was all just smoke and mirrors, and so I, I say that just because I'm curious, not because I don't think it's possible. Obviously, the capabilities of satellites and AI combined with the data sets that the companies have, I think you can extract a lot of value from that. But I'm just I'm curious as to how does it actually work? You know what I mean? So the strongest part is is the AI, and the other thing that they're doing with the satellites is they're not using the the visible light frequency. So stuff that you and I would think of that you could see that visible light frequency is only a small piece of the, of the spectrum. So you go to ultraviolet and infrared, humans can't see that, but machines can, and it's, it's still visible light, just not visible to humans. So they're using different parts of the spectrum and what they're doing, you know, I'll give you a, a very crude example. Let's say that it bounces ultraviolet off a rock cropping in somewhere in New Mexico. And that bounce of that ultraviolet says, tells the machine that there's a high percentage of porous clay that's in that rock. Well, the AI will will learn that. And as it learns more and more, it'll start comparing that to existing production, existing geophysical. And at some point that AI should be able to make with a reasonable degree of certainty, a correlation between the amount of porous clay it sees using ultraviolet and the fact that there might be reservoirs nearby and where they would be. So it's the AI is the most important part, but they're, they're using the visible spectrum or, not, or the non-visible part of the spectrum in the satellites to actually collect the data. So the biggest, most important part of this is the AI learning and making connections to existing seismic and production data based upon what the the technology sends it back from the uh, parts of the spectrum that humans can't see. So it's going to be interesting to watch. I understand the assumption. I just don't know under, understand enough about geology or geophysics to see if that correlation is always the same, in which case you can build upon it or not. If we have any geologists out there, I'd love to have your input on that. Yeah, for sure. 
So the last article for the day is talking about digital transformation at BP it is starting to add up to billions of dollars worth of value. Okay. So this is an incredibly just deep article. And so I encourage all of you to go read it if you're interested in anything digital and digital transformation at companies. But there's a few things that I wanted to kind of point out. And so first off, obviously, you know, BP has been looking to obviously kind of creating startups. They started BP Ventures about 10 years ago. So they've been kind of funding and creating startups internally, but then also funding things externally. They've made a few acquisitions. They're really pushing in all directions and trying to be as innovative as possible, which is really, really surprising for me, knowing kind of my experience with some of the different CVCs and, and dealing with some of the larger companies. It's as uncommon in this space for, for a super major. But there's one quote in here that, that, that kind of spoke to me, something that I've been saying for a while, is that they've really taken the approach of, I think most people fail because, especially with digital transformation, because they think about the technologies first and they think about the people second. Whereas BP is so focused on the people first and building the technology around that. Because if you do it the other way, people complain about it. You give the you give the employees whatever technology you want them to use, and then you complain that it's not being engaged with. It's well, You never consulted with them in the first place. You don't understand their jobs. You don't understand their workflows. You don't understand their needs. So I think hats off to BP for but it seems like you know they're absolutely, hopefully, doing it the right way. And they're doing a lot of cool stuff. So they're not just looking at seismic data. We keep talking about the digital transformation and big data analytics and AI, and we talk a lot about upstream. BP's doing this in their downstream part of the business. They're, BP's doing this in their pipeline part of the business. They're building bots to replace people to do inspections in all parts of the oil and gas industry that are hazardous to people. You know, They got a bot that has magnetic treads they're using to crawl pipelines to inspect the pipelines for signs of corrosion. That sort of stuff right now doesn't sound really i mean it sounds cool but it doesn't sound very real but i'm telling you with the speed of technology and the the costs have been driven down so much in a couple of years bps could be ahead of everybody else and and not only they could be ahead as far as things like pipeline integrity but as far as hs and e metrics because they've they've gotten machines to do the work that used to be dangerous for people to do and i, I just i just think this is awesome i've been saying this for years and everybody says i'm crazy that i think somewhere down the road the oil and gas industry is gonna look like silicon valley it's gonna be sexy and fast and cool this is a perfect sign that at least bp is starting thinking that way too yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I love that the fact that digital transformation kind of has a spotlight on it, especially over the last year. There's a lot of momentum in this space. Companies are really looking to change things from the top down, which is absolutely necessary. You can't just say, hey, we want to do some cool stuff unless the entire C-suite is behind that and personally managing it. It doesn't work. And Jake, it also, you don't want to do it because it's cool. You want to do it because it makes a difference. It drives a different business metric, different hs metric, increases production, whatever. And that's what BP's talking about here. And they're not just doing it because it's cool. They're doing it because they think it's the future of our industry, which I agree 110%. Yeah. And some, so some cool numbers just really quickly before we uh, wrap up is BP said that they were completed the planning and drilling of a deep water well in Gulf of Mexico in 13 weeks. And they're attributing that 100% to the, uh, the digital transformation that they've had internally. That is half the time of what their benchmark was. And then in offshore Trinidad, the company created a completed a well plan in four weeks compared to its usual four months, a 75% reduction. That's insane. Yeah. And, and that's time to profitability if you don't understand that so most of these big projects the operator spends a lot of money up front with no money coming in and it may be years before they actually start producing oil and gas to sell so when you can shrink that down that makes that project so much more commercially viable that's that's really cool that's a huge time difference yep hats off to bp if you're one of the people or you don't want people who are working on any of these projects with a bp i'd love to talk to you so feel free to reach out yeah 
I'd actually like to talk to you too. So reach out to both of us. And speaking of cool tech stuff, we talk about our giveaway. You know, at the last happy hour, Jake, somebody walked in wearing shirt 00001 that we gave away. And the entire crew there, once they realized what shirt goes, dude, you need to take it off and box it away. It's going to be a collectible. We're giving away these really cool shirts. We spent big bucks. So they're sized and cut to fit both men and women. They have our logo on it. They have IBM's logo. Thank you, IBM, for being the sponsor of this show. And they have a drawing of a pump jack that was patented, I think, in 1800s on the front. It's a cool shirt. But the coolest thing about it is each shirt has a unique serial number. So the number on your shirt will be different than everybody else's, and it'll be the only number like that. What well, not only does that make it instantly collectible, but then throughout the year, Jake and I are going to give away some cool stuff. So you may hear Jake or I say, Hey, shirt number 117, you just won this really cool trip to see IBM doing uh, cognitive computing in real time. Or, Hey, shirt number 17, come join Jake and I at blah, blah, blah. So it's really easy. Go to the show notes. There's a link you click on. We give away one lucky shirt a week, sign up. And this has actually been, this has been a huge hit for us. So, you know, we appreciate all of our listeners that have an appetite for this. And we promise you we're going to do more cool stuff like this. Speaking of cool stuff like this, Jake, what's the rig count at? 1,015 rigs. Once again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going lower. This is not a bad thing. This is just the nature of the business. Yeah. And then the other thing you have to remember is that the U.S. production, especially from the shell basins, is at an all-time high. So even though the rig count's going down, our production numbers are going up, which is where it should be. And speaking of going up, hey, street team, we're getting our act together. If uh, you want to go join our street team, we're asking for volunteers. We only ask you to give us an hour of work a week. And if you can't give us an hour of work a week because life gets away, we don't care. You get cool stuff. You get invited to our as a members of our press team. If you're in that right geographic area, we got cool shirts coming. We got other swag. We're also going to start creating some unique, valuable content. So if you want to join, there's a link in the show notes. It's the um, it's a private. We've moved it to a private Facebook group because that seems to be easiest for everybody. And we're going to start doing some one on ones with me and some of the other hosts. We're also going to be creating some unique content. Plus, you get to help us do some really cool stuff. So go join the street team. We appreciate your help. And then we have our happy hours going on. We have two right now. So we have the Midland happy hour. We have the Houston happy hour. Both are on Tuesday, May 28th. So you can't make both of them, even if you could. If you haven't signed up for either one of those, go sign up now before they fill up. If you're a company that would like to showcase what you do to the oil and gas industry very cost effectively, let me know. We're looking for sponsors for both of those. The Houston Happy Hour is only 500 bucks. I mean, there's nowhere else you can get that type of exposure of 500 bucks. Midland's a little bit more expensive because the logistics out there are more expensive. It's 750. It's still a steal. And like I said earlier, Jake and I will be speaking at the Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico on July 24th and 26th. And this is a, a joke between Jake and I. But we'll tell you a secret audience. It's a we didn't know what we were gonna speak what we were speaking on until like two days ago. <laughs> so we agreed to come speak, but we didn't know what we were speaking on. But now we know. So it's a we're looking for it. We're also bringing the podcast. So if you're in that area of the country, come check it out. And really, if you're in the area of company, you should join IPA and anyway. The money goes for a good cause. They're doing great work out there, uh, making sure they educate the public, make sure they uh, they um, they protect the rights of our oil and gas industry operate. And at the same time, making sure that we're environmentally responsible and that we take care of our local communities. Um, so Jake and I are going to be doing a live podcast there and also delivering a keynote. If you want to learn about these events and more, go to the show notes, click on my monthly oil and gas events newsletter. We put all the events in your inbox once a month. We never spam you. And oftentimes there's cool stuff in there that nobody knows about, like free passes or whatever to other stuff. And if you'd like Jake and I to come speak to your organization, let me know. We get asked to speak a lot. We love to speak to universities, to companies, sales and 
marketing teams to young professionals group to industry organizations. So just reach out. We happen to share the details. And then if you listen to the show any length of time, you know, we have the first Friday Q&A. Ask us a question. The goal is not to stump Jake and I. And if we use your question on the air, we'll give you a big shout out. And then if you go check out our website, allgasthisweek.com, give us your email address. We won't spam you. We're going to use that in the future for something cool. Quite honestly, we haven't figured out yet what, but we will. And then finally, join the LinkedIn group. LinkedIn group's over 2,000 members now, Jake. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I remember it was three and, and one of them was me and one of them was you, right? <laughs> so it's really cool that we're up to 2000. Microsoft's getting better and better. Uh, the LinkedIn group, we're also starting to pu- push unique content out there. Big shout out to both uh, Tim and Julie. It's our marketing team out there. They are kicking butt and taking names. I've had, I don't know how many people work for a uh, large marketing department, only gas in the last two or three weeks, literally personally reach out to me and go, what are y'all doing with y'all's marketing? Y'all are all over the place and it's great. And it's a unique content for each platform. It's not me. It's not Jake either. It's Julie and Tim. So good, good shout out to those two for doing a great job. Who knows a lot. And it's about time to get out of here. Ready, ready to close this thing down, Jake? Let's do it. All right, folks. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Hey, everyone. It's Julie here with the events on deck for May 2019. We have our Midland Happy Hour on May 21st at Midland Beer Garden, and it will be from 6 to 9. And then we have our Houston happy hour, and it's going to be at the Canon from 6 to 9 on May 28th. This month, we have the Oil and Gas Smart Contracts Conference on May 15th and 16th, and we will actually be launching another one of our new podcasts live from that event. So check it out. The link is in the show notes. We have the Merge Market Energy Forum on May 21st at, it's in Houston, just check that out in the show notes. And then we have a charity event, Golf for Good. That's a golf charity event for Redeemed Ministries. That's going to be on June 11th, 2019. And they are still looking for sponsors. So check that out in our show notes. And if you want to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. And that is it for the month of May. Some events on deck in the, the coming months. We have shoot for the future a clay shoot on friday july 26th and then napes and the the nape summer is coming up in august and that is it for our upcoming events tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of oil and gas this week podcast a product of the oil and gas global network Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.